What's up, everyone? This is episode number 70 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right. I've got a little bit longer of an episode for you this week, so I'm not going to spend long here on the intro, but I do want to give you some background real quick. Last week, I was browsing Twitter, and I noticed that a nonprofit that I follow called the Dropping Dimes Foundation, I think you've heard me talk a little bit about them before, but they help out older ABA players. Well, um, they retweeted a letter that a player named Larry Jones had written a collector back in the 70s. And that's the kind of stuff that I love seeing. You know, he said something to the effect of, thanks for, you know, writing um, and asking for my autograph. I've never seen this card before. If you see more, can you send them to me? One of those kind of things. Um, So I went to this collector's profile and it was a guy named Tim Gallagher. And um, he had incredible stuff and he had less than 100 followers. And I'm thinking, you know, I know there are a lot of people out there that would love to see this stuff. They just don't know about this account. Um, Because it was a lot of really cool memorabilia and letters and photos and stuff that he had had signed or that he had gotten through the mail or in person over the years. Um, Those of you that have been tuning in for a long time, you might remember episode two where I talked about the 1972-1973 top set and how I was trying to get a signed copy of every card from that set. Well, uh, I've made a few additions since then. And I'm down to one card, and it's an obscure player named Willie Sejoiner. So when I saw this, I thought, you know, this is a bit of a long shot, but what do I have to lose? Tim has some incredible stuff. Maybe he has this card as well. So I reached out to him. Not only does he have a signed copy, but he could tell me when and where he got it signed, which to me is incredible. I love knowing all the details like that. It's so much more meaningful than just buying something off of eBay. So uh, we are I don't have it yet. We're in the process of working a trade out for it. Um, but in the meantime, I messaged him and said, look, I hope this isn't invasive. I love what you're doing on your account. You've seen some incredible stuff and I'd love to talk to you on the phone and kind of pick your brain about some things. And really at that point, I wasn't thinking about doing a podcast, but um, after chatting, I, I felt like you know, we're kind of cut from the same cloth and maybe it would make a really good episode or maybe, you know, maybe some people would be interested in hearing that. So I invited him on and uh, we found ourselves back on the phone a couple of days later. So this one was a lot of fun for me. Uh, I'm going to play for you the recording of our call and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Tim, as we all know, there's a lot going on right now in the world everyone's routine has drastically changed by the coronavirus. So I always like to start off with a a basic but an important question. How are you doing? Well, Kyle, I'm uh, thankfully doing fine. My family's all healthy and we've been impacted a little bit with our jobs and so on with the the corona situation, but uh, just taking things a day at a time and and thankful for our health and also, it's kind of given me this time to kind of reinvest in my collection and go through some of the, the shoe boxes and binders and, and folders and drawers of, of old cards and photos. So it's 
it's kind of helped me slow down and, and revisit a lot of the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We I've seen a lot of people in the hobby now are are all of a sudden um, discovering boxes in their garage, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there's a part of me that's a little jealous about that because um, I, I'm not finding as much stuff as I'd like. But um, it, like you said, it's always good to have perspective, right? And something sometimes that challenges our perspective, even if it is. You know, we don't want to celebrate something horrible that's happening, but um, we try and make something good out of it. Um, so I first met you through social media, and I, I'll preface this and say I met you last uh, this past week, so it's not like we've known each other a long time here, even though I, I feel like we have. But uh, looking at your profile, you describe yourself as a basketball analyst, a historian, a collector, a player evaluator, a player trainer and a podcast contributor at chicagobullseye.com. Now, as we all know, there are character limits to these social media platforms, and it's hard to sum up someone's existence in such a small space. So I look forward to learning more about you and your collection today. Uh, But do you have anything to add on to that description to get us started off? Um, Well, I think that sums it up. uh, But just have had a love of the game since I was a young kid. Uh, growing up in Dayton, Ohio, which is a big college basketball community. And at the time, I was not too far from Cincinnati that had an NBA team, the Cincinnati Royals at the time. So uh, I was fortunate where I grew up and when I grew up. Uh, so this was, you know, my love of the game really started in the mid to late 60s. And so uh, that's when it all got started. And and so just throughout my life, I've always enjoyed playing the game, coaching the game, uh, following the game, and then you know, we'll get into the, the whole collection aspect on our discussion today. So for a little continuity's sake for listeners, he mentioned the Cincinnati Royals. Uh, not too long ago, I talked about the Rochester Royals um, with the 1957-58 top set. You guys might remember the Twyman-Stokes story. Um, they became the Cincinnati Royals um, shortly after that. So here we have someone who saw some of those Cincinnati games growing up. So that's a pretty cool connection there. Um, Now, as you know, from our previous conversation on the phone, there are a number of things that we could talk about. But today, I'd like for people to hear about your collection, because uh, we all have collections, but our collection story is something that's unique, right? No one else has that exact same story. So you rattled off some numbers to me the other day, but let's start with some stats before we get to the actual story. What do you collect, and how long have you been collecting? Well, uh, we'll focus on my basketball collection. For a number of years, I also collected baseball and football autographs on cards, photos, index cards, but auctioned those off back in 2015. So I just kind of lost interest. My two sons really weren't that interested in in those, and so um, decided – it wasn't easy, but decided to just – pass those along to other collectors and, and maybe make a little money in the process. But as far as basketball goes, the kind of the foundation of my collection are collecting signed index cards, you know, th- three by five cards, whatever you want to call those, the, you know, the white sheets of paper, uh, basketball cards from, let's just say 57 through about uh, 1990, 1991. But I have cards before then and after then, and you know, obscure sets as well. But kind of that range is where I really focused on uh, collecting. And again, 
always with the intent of trying to get as many of them signed as possible. Uh, the other aspect of the collection are photos, and that could be anything from 8x10 glossies to tear-outs from old Sports Illustrateds or sport magazines or different basketball publications that have come out over the years. And then, of course, programs, media guides, that type of thing. Um, so anything in that range uh, and, and the photos inside them, that's really the foundation of my collection. One thing I really like about your collection and some of the pieces that you've shown on your social media regardless of the player you refer to these as you know you'll have one each day and you'll say today's treasure is this um some of them have significant monetary value some of them you know likely don't but the same verbiage is used either way i like that you refer to them as your treasures um so this past weekend though we chatted on the phone and you laid out your entire collecting history and I'll be honest, my head was spinning because there was so much stuff and so much that I wanted to ask you. I'm sure I interrupted you quite a bit. You were still very gracious about it. Um, I just, I had so many thoughts in my head. So this might take some time here and that's fine. But what I'd like for you to do now is to narrate your history in the hobby. And I might interject, you know, I'll try not too much, but I might interject here and there with some questions or some context for listeners but feel free if this takes a good chunk of time, that's fine. So let's let's have you narrate your history in the hobby. Sure. Glad to do it, Kyle. Well, as I mentioned, I got started with the collection in the late 60s. Let's just say about 1967. And there's a couple of things that converged at that time that, that really lit the spark and with basketball in particular. But just like a lot of other kids at the time, I'd go by baseball and football cards. There weren't any basketball cards in 1967 being issued, as we'll get to shortly. But um, So just like any kid, go to the neighborhood drugstore and buy my packs of cards, open them up, you know, chew the gum and see who I got and you know, trade with my friends and try to accumulate them. I live kind of near Cincinnati, so collecting Cincinnati Reds or Cincinnati Bengals, you know, those kind of things were especially exciting. But just collecting like like everyone else, and um, but then in 1967, University of Dayton basketball went to the NCAA finals. So even though I was a young kid and I had a basketball hoop uh, at the side of the house where we lived at the time, and uh, but was playing ba- basketball during basketball season, baseball during baseball season, football during football season, just kind of rotated through those like like most kids at the time. But when Dayton got to the NCAA finals and for the listeners, it's probably hard to understand how the scale of the Final Four, for example, has changed over the last 50, 60 years. But at the time, obviously, it was a big deal in Dayton, but it wasn't the, the global event and the awareness of it like it is now. But certainly in our community, it was. And, and Dayton basketball was a big deal even before that. So I kind of caught up that uh, energy of that event and, and saw how the community responded to it. There was just something in the air. I don't know how to really even explain it. And the the star player on that team was a guy named Don May, who, Kyle, I've listened to your podcast about your quest to get the 72 top set signed, and Don May's on that set, actually. And um, so there was a particular team and player that, that really sparked my interest at the time. And so that's where the love of basketball really uh, really took off for me. Um, the other thing is I have a cousin 
who since has passed away, sadly, that was about five years older than me and lived in Chicago. And so in the summertime, sometimes we'd go to Chicago and visit visit their family or they'd come to Dayton and, and visit our family. Uh, we'd either go to a Cubs game in Chicago or a Reds game in Cincinnati. Um, and as part of that, my older cousin had already kind of uh, gotten a system down in terms of collecting autographs and kind of showed me the ropes of, of, well, if we go to a baseball game, you can go a little bit early and get some players during batting practice or down by the dugout. You can wait after the game and get them as they leave for the team bus or leave for their cars. And there was really not much security and you know, concern in those days. So it was pretty easy to right. do. So this was and this was pre-internet, so you kind of had to have someone do that intel for you, right? I I never really thought of it. I collected cards, and but when I'd go to a baseball game, maybe I'd get the program signed or something, right? I was just a young kid, and there was a guy signing by the dugout. My dad would say, "Hey, why don't you run down there and get you know Ted Abernathy's autograph on the Reds?" You know, and I'd get him on a program, right? Which, but my cousin kind of showed me. Well, he had his stack of his baseball cards with him, and and got those signed. And so that kind of, uh, the light bulb kind of came on for me. And of course, living in Chicago, he had access to all kinds of teams and sports and, you know, much uh, greater access than just living in Cincinnati. But, um, but he kind of lit the, the spark for me in that way. And then he also showed me how you could get autographs through the mail. You know, you could write to the teams, you know, the player care of the team, send a self uh, stamp self-addressed envelope and, and most players would respond. And so uh, kind of with that foundation of information, I, I thought that was pretty cool, right? And I had these cards and, well, why don't I try sending some of them in the mail? You know, there was, even though I was a young kid, I, I understood a little bit about the risk reward, like it may not come back. So that card, if that player doesn't sign it and respond, you'll never see that card again. So that was a little concerning and, and kind of limited maybe some of my risk factor at the time, but but sometimes you'd have doubles of certain players, and so you'd send it. And, and again, in those days, most, most players came back. Um, the other thing my cousin showed me, and again, this is over a period of, of time in summers now, uh, but also showed me the aspect of getting players at the team hotels. You, know, you could wait by the lobby. And, and again, I was a, a younger kid, you know, let's say 9, 10, 12, 11 years old, but you kind of had to act a certain way, behave a certain way, be respectful, you know, not, uh, you know, not be running around the hotel lobby or creating a disturbance, right? So it, it, it kind of taught me, you know, just ways to conduct yourself if you're really uh, serious about this hobby. <laughs> and so, um, and, and just the rhythms of, okay, on, you know, this is about the time the players would leave the hotel to leave for the ballpark or on a Sunday, you know, that's the end of a homestand. So, the Mets or the Cubs or whatever team we'd be waiting for at the Netherland Hilton in Cincinnati, you know, the players would all check out. Again, these were the old days, right? Where there wasn't, you couldn't check out you know, electronically. You know, the players would come down and go to the front desk and check out themselves. So Sundays were especially good days because sometimes they'd have to wait in line a little bit to check out. So you could go up and approach them and have them sign while they're waiting. Um, so, so that kind of gave me the foundation of, of collecting and how to go about it. Um, and then with, with Dayton's success in the uh, NCAA tournament in 1967, they went to the finals and lost to UCLA with Coach Wooden and Lou Alcindor, who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So all those things uh, were kind of etched in my mind at the time. 
and um, and really got me started collecting autographs and you know starting to have some success through the mail. That was really exciting, and it is to this day <laughs> when I get something back in the mail. You know, it's it's kind of cool to open the package and or the envelope and see who see who it is and. Did they sign it like I hoped they'd sign it? And uh, did they send me a little note or anything else? Because I, I try to maybe make some sort of a personal uh, connection with the, the note I might send them. And we'll get to that later in terms of advice to collectors. So, you know, it was pretty rudimentary in the, in the old days. I, I remember sending to some players without a stamped self-addressed envelope, just sending them care of the team and saying, hey, can you send me an autographed picture? And, you know, not really even thinking uh, about you know the courtesy of sending them a stamp self-addressed envelope and things like that. Obviously, I got more uh, professional about it as I uh, did more and more. But again, had enough successes back in the mail, and and that really lit the spark to do it. And so then started collecting autographs at University of Dayton basketball games. The Cincinnati Royals were in the NBA at the time, so would go down and get the teams uh, that would come into Cincinnati. And again, in those days, it was. Uh, the Lakers with with Wilt and Elgin Baylor and Jerry West. It was the Bucks with Oscar Robertson and uh, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The Knicks with Walt Frazier, Willis Reed. You know those kind of guys coming in, and pretty much most of them were cooperative and would sign. Obviously, there weren't Sharpie markers at the time, or uh, and sometimes are um, you know what we did you know, decided to get signed or uh, how we had them sign it was maybe not the the best in terms of a long-term thing, but at the time it was very exciting and, and really it, it kind of took off from there. So, um, so I'm assuming that your, your parents were very supportive of this scene that stamps had to come from somewhere and you <laughs> had to get to these places, right? Exactly. Well, initially I think they thought it would be a passing thing and, and you know, it would be just a phase I was going through and, you know, as, as envelopes and stamps started disappearing from my dad's desk, uh, you know, they, they started asking, you know, well, we're, you know, we need stamps to send out these bills. There's no stamps left. And, <laughs> and so we, we kind of worked out an arrangement where, you know, I, I kind of had to start uh, paying for some of this on my own. So, um, again, they were they were supportive of it, but um, monies that I that I'd collected from birthdays and holidays and cutting lawns in the neighborhood and things like that. So th that was my uh, baseball card money, stamps and envelopes money primarily. Usually, you know, they would be good about I'd get a subscription to Sports Illustrated or things like that for birthdays. And so, you know, I had a little bit of a, a system of, of getting pictures and uh, magazines and things like that to send as well. But uh, yeah, and then, um, so once I started having some success and getting things back in the mail and this system that my cousin Bill in Chicago had, had showed me, I shared it with a couple of my friends at school. And um, a couple of them, uh, my good friends, Jack Zimmerman and Vince Martin, and there were other friends that tried it for a while, but they kind of like the phase that my parents thought maybe I was going through. They, they maybe would send out a few things and have some success, but just didn't have a sustained interest in it or just didn't want to put the time and effort into it. Thought it was kind of interesting, but just didn't want to pursue it. But my two friends, Jack and Vince, were kind of at my same level of interest. And we'd worked out a system where we'd, for instance, we'd mail to the top, let's say, we'd get the latest basketball publication that would be the season preview, and we'd mail out to, say, the top 50 college players for that college season. 
and we'd put in three index cards. So if they get one back, I keep one, give one to Jack, give one to Vince, and and they would do the same for me. So we kind of divided and conquered, I guess, and and had a lot of coverage. Of course, if somebody personalized or didn't sign all three, that you know, that that put a little wrinkle in our plans. But generally, it worked out. Um, the other thing is we we weren't old enough to drive or anything yet, and there wasn't really a public transportation system to get to Cincinnati where most of the action was. So we worked out a kind of a rotating system of getting our parents to take us down to Cincinnati for, for games. Um, we kind of sold them on the idea that if you wait after the game, all the traffic will be gone from the parking lot. So it'll be a lot easier to exit. So, so we, we were already we creative were, solutions. Yeah. We were already negotiating as, you know, as 12 year olds, right. In terms of how to get what we wanted. Um, so, so those are some really fun memories and, and Jack and Vince are still good friends of mine to this day. They still have their collections, although they, they, you know, they stopped at a certain point. I mean, they might've gotten some things here and there, but, but kind of moved on with life. And, uh, I'm, I'm the one who's, who's kind of, other than a few interruptions, which we'll get to, um, have, have kind of pursued this now over many decades. So that kind of takes me up to, uh, I, I guess the high, high school years of, uh, of collecting. So. Once I got into high school, I would say I, I, I kind of eased up a little bit as I was trying to make my high school varsity basketball team. That was a really big deal to me and a big deal in the community. So uh, I focused a lot of my time on, on that. And, and of course, during basketball season, I was on teams and playing in games and things like that. So a little more limited in what all we could do. Plus the Royals, as you mentioned, uh, sure, they moved from Rochester to Cincinnati, but then they moved from Cincinnati to Kansas City. So the Royals left, and, and that was crushing because we just loved the NBA. Um, some of the listeners probably know Nate Archibald, Nate Tiny Archibald. So his first two years in the NBA were with the Cincinnati Royals, and he was so much fun to watch. And, and actually, Bob Cousy, who's a, a basketball icon, was the Royals coach when I first started going to games. So that was really interesting as well. They didn't have a whole lot of success and or make the playoffs or anything, but there was some really – uh, interesting names and, and people that passed through there. And again, of course, the visiting teams that came in, like I mentioned, it was it was a lot of fun to see those teams. Um, so really the closest place to go for pro basketball was Indianapolis. Then the Pacers were in the ABA in those days. So uh, so kind of focused more on my high school playing career, which was, wasn't was anything spectacular, but I did uh, did make the varsity team and, and that was a, a great experience. And um and you know, was kind of picking my spots in terms of, of games and, and chances to get autographs. But you know, we by now had driver's licenses. We'd get over to the Indianapolis and see some Pacer games. There'd be some occasional exhibition games that would make their way into Dayton or Cincinnati, um, usually involving the Pacers or ABA Kentucky Colonels. So again, that was pretty cool to see those kind of kind of games and, and teams. And again, still collecting when I'd go to those events. Um, How far were you from Cleveland? Uh, you know, Cleveland was about three, three and a half, four hours away. So uh, I know people not from Ohio probably think uh, Ohio is a lot more compact than it is. So, you <laughs> right. know, I, I grew up in the Dayton, Cincinnati area. So Indianapolis uh, was a lot closer uh, than than Cleveland. You know, I, I did follow the Cavs some, but um, despite being from Ohio, um, you know, I wasn't a, an avid Cavs fan necessarily. And, and again, when I first started getting into it, the Cavs were kind of a rival of the Cincinnati Royals. Um, so the Royals were definitely my my team at the time for the NBA. 
And then, of course, right. the, the iconic teams at the time, and some of them still are, like the Lakers and Celtics and, and, and the Knicks were really good in those days and the Bucks. So, you know, just like probably a lot of young fans today, right, you follow what are the teams that, the, that are winning and the great players are on. So, you know, we all had an interest in that as well. And it was pretty magical when the Lakers would come to town with Wilt and Jerry West. Baylor was kind of at the tail end of his career, so wasn't uh, you know, in his prime. And you know, so didn't really get to enjoy seeing him in person. But, you know, seeing guys like Pistol Pete, um, you know, also one season the ABA Kentucky Colonels played about 10 games in Cincinnati. And so – Got a chance to go to a handful of those games, including the Nets with uh, Dr. J. Julius Irving, which was one of the great nights of my life. You know, that, that was really cool. And he was such a, a great guy, an ambassador of the game, and signed all our things afterwards, which I still have them. Well, they're all in ballpoint pen, but but they're still pretty cool. And again, he was he, he had a certain presence to him, and you could tell he was aware of what an ambassador for the league and the game that he was. And, you know, again, I... I didn't necessarily think of all those things at the time when I'm a teenager getting the autographs, but looking back, just how classy he was, you know, that, that was a pretty cool experience. And then when it, when a powerhouse team would come in to play Dayton, like Notre Dame with Adrian Dantley comes to mind, right? So I'd have things to get him to sign after the game. So, um, so during my high school years, you know, it was, you know, scaled back a little bit because I was trying to be a player. Um, uh, and then, just kind of more limited access, I guess, to, to teams and players. And that kind of uh, continued on through college, although, again, would still go to uh, NCAA tournament games when Dayton would host it, would go to Pacer games. Um, I've got an interesting story about seeing a, a Pacers game in the late 70s. And, again, in those days, it was uh, relatively easy to get things signed after the game. There, there was maybe one security guard standing by the locker room door, but you could stand right by there. And uh, I don't remember which particular team I was uh, waiting for. And the Pacers and the opposing team locker rooms were basically just kind of on opposite sides of this hallway. So it wasn't a, a big area. So I was waiting for the players to come out. And the security guy came up to me and said, hey, if you're collecting autographs, you need to get the, the autograph of that blonde headed boy leaning against the wall over there. And I, I said, well, who, who is he? And he said, well, that's Larry Bird, and he's going to play for Indiana State next year. Well, it, as much as I follow the game and I'm a fan of the game, again, you have to go back. This is probably, what, 1977, let's say. And the information like it is now in recruiting, I mean, someone like Larry Bird would probably be known as a middle school player today. But in those days, there just wasn't the media and press. And, and again, he kind of gotten off the grid a little bit as well after his – a uh, brief time at Indiana University, he went back home. You know, the, everybody knows kind of the legendary story, right, where he went back to French Lick and um, and kind of got coaxed into going back to school. But I'd never heard of Larry Bird, didn't know who he was. But I went over and had him sign an index card and, you know, just kind of filed it away and had that in my mind. Well, sure enough, you know, in the next next season, you start hearing about this guy, Larry Bird, putting up these ridiculous numbers at Indiana State. So so that was kind of a cool experience and a nice tip from uh, from that uh, security guard. But uh, the other thing about that night is I remember uh, Larry Bird was waiting to see one of the Pacers players, a guy named Steve Green, who actually I posted something on my Twitter today that I got from Steve Green way back in the day. But I remember 
Steve Green came out and gave Bird his shoes, his basketball shoes, which, you know, thinking now, people would think that it was a collectible or something, right? Where I'm guessing they probably were the same size and Bird was probably needing some shoes to play in. And, and he and Steve Green had been together briefly at Indiana and they may have some other Indiana ties that I don't even know about in terms of hometowns or whatever. But I remember just watching that all unfold and, and wondering about it. And uh, a pretty cool memory, obviously, what Larry Bird became. Right. Long before he was pitching Converse shoes himself, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm pretty sure the shoes were Dr. J you know, leather Converse that, that Green had uh -huh. worn for the Pacers, uh, if, if my memory is correct. Although that's a long time ago, but uh, but that's a pretty cool um, experience and, and encounter with Larry Bird, which sometimes the Bird encounters have not been as pleasant over the years. Right. He's a tough and one. That's also uh, that's also a testament to, you know, be mindful of of the other people around you. Right. Because you had the security guard that really did you a great favor there. I mean, maybe didn't seem like a huge one at the time for him. But in retrospect, that, you know, that's a pretty cool story and a, a great collectible. It is. A absolutely. So. So anyway, that was kind of the collecting scenario for me, you know, mailing out a few things here and there, but not much, you know, so kind of focused on finishing up high school, going, going to college. And, um, and during those college years kind of collected to the level of what I, what I talked about before, you know, kind of occasional Pacer games, occasional college games, uh, occasional exhibition games that, that may make their way to, to where I was or still visiting my cousins up in Chicago. So we occasionally go to a Bucks game or a, a Bulls game, you know, very, very few. But, you know, if, if it aligned with a visit to see them you know, over the holidays or on a spring break or something. So after college, I ended up moving out west to Phoenix, Arizona. So I had some family connections and decided to start my business career uh, out west. And so um, you know, so again, was kind of pursuing that and, uh, you know, relationships and, you know, and, and really wasn't focused on collecting. Although I've always, I've saved everything that I ever collected. My mom was great of, in terms of not throwing anything away that I'd accumulated, you know, over the years. So it, it all hadn't traveled with me at that point, right? It was in probably shoe boxes under my bed back in Ohio. But um, um, when I was in college, I'd gone to see Michigan State play Kentucky in the NCAA regional finals at University of Dayton Arena. And that was Magic Johnson's freshman year at Michigan State. And obviously, I, I was aware who Magic Johnson was, knew he was a, a, you know, a rising star in college basketball. Um, so I thought, well, I'm at this game. It would be cool to get him to sign an index card. You know, I didn't really have anything else at the time. And um, so waited after the game and there was a little bit of a frenzy. Kentucky beat Michigan State actually and, uh, to advance to the final four. And so after the game, it was a little bit of a scramble and not all the players got on the team bus. Some were getting in private cars and I don't know if they're going back to the hotel or driving back to East Lansing. I, you know, I, I don't know, but, but I remember Magic and Greg Kelser came out and there was, it was kind of a, a swarm of people around them and, and they were kind of hustling to get to their ride. So I, I kind of had a, a, a choice, which was not a good one, of which players should I go after? Greg Kelser, who at the time was quite a star and you know, was a very high NBA draft pick. And the next year he had magic led Michigan State to the championship. But um, am I going to 
Chase Kelser or Magic? <laughs> and, and I decided, all right, I'm going to get Greg Kelser. And that was a dumb move, obviously. But I, I did get Greg Kelser on the index. Once I got him, I still tried to go after Magic, but just kind of like your podcast where you talk about the autograph exploits and kind of near misses or bad timing, you know, just didn't get there in time. He was in the car and gone, and, and that was it. So um, that's a little foreshadowing to uh, um, my collecting history here of, of missing out on getting Magic's autograph that day. So fast forward a couple of years later, I'm living in Phoenix, starting my job uh, and my career working for this bank in, in downtown Phoenix, and just kind of getting to know the area and the, the landscape of things. Well, there's a hotel in downtown Phoenix called Jerry Buss's Camelback Sahara. Well, Jerry Buss had bought the Lakers by that point, and um, his name was literally on the marquee of the hotel. So it wasn't any secret that he was the owner of the hotel. And um, and, and the hotel was just a couple blocks where I was working at the time in downtown Phoenix. So I kind of put two and two together and thought, well, if Jerry Buss owns the Lakers and he owns this hotel and the Lakers are coming to Phoenix to play the Suns, I'm guessing they'll probably stay at this hotel. <laughs> and and uh, again, I had not explored. I'd gone to Suns games, and um, but not really collected at, at that point. But it was kind of still eating at me a little bit that I hadn't gotten Magic Johnson's autograph that day. And of course, by then, Magic had won an NBA champion, you know, an NCAA championship, an NBA championship, and you know, on his way to the the basketball icon that we all know of now. So I just felt a, a gap in my collection that I didn't have Magic. So that was kind of the prime motivation to wander over by the hotel after work one day. And sure enough, there was a, a team bus idling out front of the hotel and not a soul in sight but me, uh, other than hotel employees and, and nobody really paying attention to me. And, and sure enough, Laker players started wandering out through the lobby, getting on the bus and here comes magic and there I am with my ballpoint pen and an index card and a couple sports illustrated photos. And, uh, and he was as pleasant as could be. I even, I remember getting Kareem, I think on one or two that day, which again, he's, he's been tough over the years, but it was a, a, a very easy and successful process to get those signatures. And so that, uh, kind of gave me the energy and the you know reinvigoration to, to maybe get back into this again. You know, because I'm in an NBA city, I kind of have had some initial success. I would think if there's other collectors, they would have been here today <laughs> because this is the Lakers. And uh, so anyway, it was really cool to, to kind of get back into it. And then again, without getting into details, I had quite a quite a run from, let's say, about 82 to 87 in Phoenix, uh, you know, basically working all the teams at the hotels, uh, at, at, you know, didn't have season tickets, but went to a lot of the games and, and kind of had the whole system down in terms of, of collecting NBA autographs during that time. And of course, those are the years where Bird and Magic, Jordan got, came into the league. So it was, it was a really um, exciting time for the league, although it really still hadn't quite blown up on a global scale like it did, you know, a, a few years later. Uh, with the dream team and all of that stuff, right? So this is still, it's still a little bit of an under the radar event, <laughs> believe it or not. I know, I know today's fans probably find that hard to believe, but um, so I had a lot of success collecting in Phoenix. 
Um, a couple of my childhood friends were playing in the league during those years. So Jim and John Paxson. So some of the listeners probably for sure know of John Paxson if they've watched any of the Last Dance and, of course, follow Jordan and the Bulls. Uh, my next door neighbor, just by coincidence, uh, was friends and had gone to college with a couple of NBA players at the time. A guy named Dan Roundfield and another named Ben Poquette. So whenever those teams would come to town, those players would hook us up with tickets. We'd know where they were staying. We'd usually go out and get dinner after the game with them and some of their teammates. So it was really a, an amazing time, especially when I look back on it, of, of collecting. So And you were you were getting cards signed during that period too, right? into the 80s i was yes so so once i started kind of getting more active collecting again in phoenix i I kind of backfilled so in those days there were a couple of uh sports collector shops in phoenix i remember one of them was called the shoebox that was kind of my primary place where i would go and sometimes you know during lunch breaks uh uh, from work or whatever or after work i'd go and, and kind of sift through all the the old tops cards they had and Oh, yeah, that guy's an assistant coach with Denver. Oh, oh that guy's a coach of Philadelphia. He broadcasts for Milwaukee. You know, so I would start backfilling some of the cards I'd missed collecting, say, from 72 to, uh, to 82, you know, kind of in that window. So, and then that kind of fueled, well, maybe I should start mailing to some of these guys I've missed over these last few years. <laughs> and so, right. you know, the thing just uh, turned into a wildfire, essentially. And, um, and that also kind of sparked looking back to some of the, um, the early sets. So the 57 tops and 61 Fleer. And, um, I, I, there were again, players kind of in those sets, kind of like you talked about in your autograph pursuits. Uh, you know, some of those players were broadcasters. Some of them were, um, actually a couple of players on those cards were neighbors and childhood, you know, dads of my childhood friends back in Dayton. So it was, you know, so I started backfilling and kind of filling in gaps. And then of course, again, in your history of cards, you, you talked about it too. There was a little gap or one year there were no cards made, which, you know, I was, I was in the, the peak of my collecting NBA autographs at the time. And uh, then the star company sets came out, which I bought them just because that's all there was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't. No. Um, can you clarify how you where you got them necessarily? Because it's my understanding that they weren't distributed um, through normal channels. Yeah. So with, with the Star Company, I remember because I was in an NBA city. Um, I, I think the collector shops, at least one or two of them, carried those cards. Um, I'm not sure if, if how strategic that was or how, how that worked out that they were available but uh, i remember buying in the cl- little clear plastic bags and you'd buy them by the team you buy them by the team um rather than by the individual player and um and then i remember i don't remember the exact source but i remember also getting some of them through some sort of a mail order situation uh, i'm not sure how i even learned that they were available that way but um but i, I picked some up that way as well and, okay. and those were pretty interesting cards in, in terms of I, I liked all the detail they had on the back in terms of uh, the, the players' history and where they were from and their high schools and, and all that. So for someone who's into all the details uh, like I am, that was it was pretty cool to have those cards with some additional information. Plus, again, they were the only cards that were on the market at the time. So, 
So that phase of my collecting, you know, those were that, that was probably the golden days of my NBA collecting um, from let's say about '82 to '87. The other thing I would do is occasionally go to the NBA summer leagues. You know, so it was a relatively short flight from Phoenix to LA. The summer league was a, a lot different than it is now, where uh, it was primarily at Loyola Marymount University near LAX Airport. And it, it was really a, um, an under-the-radar event. Um, and, and it was really for many years. But that was also a way to get players um, um, in terms of um, – it wasn't as organized with, uh, like it is now where pretty much all the teams now uh, – have their own rosters and teams in the summer league. There was some teams like that, but there was also a kind of just a mishmash of players that lived in LA and you know wanted to get get some runs in at the time. Um, even though it was an official league and there were referees and the scoreboard and everything, but it was um, almost like an underground type event, believe it or not. And that was also a great place to get autographs because um, you know you'd have people like Magic would play it on occasion and. Um, and obviously, the teams that uh, had uh, rookies coming into the league, you know, th- those guys would play. And but even veterans played in those days, and uh, if, if they were in LA and just wanted to get runs in, so so that was also a great source of getting autographs for a long time. Uh, but as- here, you just take a, a big box of cards, alphabetized, and <laughs> hope for the best. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You know, you know, I, I'm pretty good at planning, as you might have gathered. So when I'm when I go to a game, I kind of have my folders and files of you know who might be there as a, a scout someone that you know that is from that area lives in that area you know that type of thing um so try to do my research and be prepared uh, you know beyond just the people that are on the court playing so you know who else could possibly be in the building i'm, I'm pretty good at that and i've had some success and i've kind of blown some people's minds on occasion with when i've when i've seen them sitting in the stands and go up to them and have a picture in my folder that you know that, that there's kind of a stunned look of why do you have this and how would you know i would would be here <laughs> i yeah i've i've got that a few times it's a little uh little awkward at first, but you get used to it. Yeah. Although there's other times, you know, there's pictures I've carried around in my folder for decades that never got signed and I've never seen the guy, but, but if he's there, I, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to have that be the time that, oh, I didn't put those cards or those pictures in and there he was. Right. But um, I ran into Reggie Jackson once and, um, I should, I guess I should clarify on here, baseball Reggie Jackson, uh-huh. but um, I didn't have a card for him. I mean, I carried a, a card for years after that, never saw the guy again. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. You just never know who you might run into. Uh, and I'm, I, I try to be really alert when I'm traveling or out and about now. Um, but yeah, you can't have everything of everybody with you, uh, especially if you're flying through airports. But um, yeah, I know I was. This was probably two two years ago or so now, and I was going to my connecting flight, going through Dallas, and there's there's Julius Irving. I'm like, oh my gosh, there he is. That's it, you know, the doctor. But you know, I didn't really have anything to, uh, but other just you know, said said a quick hello and and moved on. But um, but anyway, so that kind of takes me up through uh, 1987 uh, when I moved to San Diego, which is where I've lived now for you know, 33 years. And so I moved over to San Diego for a job opportunity and obviously a wonderful place to live, but there's no NBA team in San Diego. 
So um, my lifestyle as terms of, of collecting and getting autographs definitely changed at that point. Um, although in the last 30 plus years, I've had the opportunity to travel a lot for business. So I've been able to schedule travel uh, on occasion that coincides with seeing NBA games and uh, college games, uh, summer league. So so there's still a lot of ways to, to get access to teams and players. And, and I've kind of gone through different uh, phases of, of mailing out to players. Uh, one of the things through this whole shelter in place and, and kind of hunker down during the corona is, is I've kind of re-engaged in mailing out a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I'd say the last, you know, five to seven years had not really sent out much through the mail, but I've started to, you know, in the last couple of months, as I've kind of gone through and as I mentioned on our introduction, kind of rediscovering some of the the shoe boxes and the, and the drawers and uh, cupboards and um, going through files of old basketball photos and so on and, and players that maybe I thought I'd run into at some time or another or uh, are now retired and gosh I never really got him on those cards that I was hoping to get and so it's been pretty fun to, to kind of rediscover sending out to players again and um, and I've kind of done that again on and off since since 1967 but uh but living in San Diego, you know, again, most of the autograph activity is not here. Uh, I occasionally go up to L.A. for some NBA games, but not much. And I'm definitely not on the autograph circuit uh, in anywhere, <laughs> um, you know, as far as that goes. Although when the summer league comes to Las Vegas, uh, you know, sadly, there's not one this year. Probably about this time, <laughs> this time of the year, you know, as we get around the first of July, I'm getting everything organized for for my travel to, to Las Vegas to to see a couple of days of summer league games and and work the autograph circuit as well, which is a you know it's just a great place to to get players and coaches and scouts and you know everybody's there. So um, sadly, that's that's not something that's going to happen this summer. So yeah. so that kind of gives you the quick you know a quick summary. I mean, we could delve into all kinds of other stories and experiences, but that kind of gives you the rough framework of kind of how I've gone after things over the years. And, um, you know, I, I definitely still collect cards and get cards that are post 1990, but it's more of either players that uh, I, I particularly like to follow, or maybe it's a kind of a retro set, right. You know, something like a, mm -hmm. like a courtside collection or something like that, where it's really cool cards of players that have been retired for a long time, but I really like the images or the, you know, or the players. And um, so it's really more of a, you know, kind of here and there. I'm not really pursuing getting particular sets or things like that, but uh, but definitely still trying to backfill. I know I told you the story about finally getting Bob Quick back in the mail. He's on a couple of the, the early Topps cards. Uh, I think he's on 1970 and 71 cards. And I'd never gotten those signed. You know, he had kind of retired from the league when I was really, you know, pursuing it. I'd mailed to him a time or two. He played at Xavier. I tried to connect through him through his university. Never, never got back from him. You know, just uh, never heard from him. But you know, kind of tracked him down through a, a current address list and just got Bob Quick on those two cards. So it's uh, you know a fifty-year uh, odyssey, which you know, he probably has no awareness or appreciation that you know getting Bob Quick's signature on these two cards has been on my mind now for over fifty years, but. Uh, 
uh, it was a real treat to get that back. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have been happier if I would have gotten something back in the mail from Scotty Pippen, right? It was, it was, right. it was just so cool to get it. Yeah, for all we know, you know, those those probably wouldn't sell on eBay for ten or fifteen bucks. And uh, but but now you have that, you know, decades long journey that goes along with it that that adds kind of a you know an underlying value to the whole thing for you. So that's uh, that's always cool to hear about stuff like that. I got a couple of questions about kind of going back about just autograph autographing in general. Um, you mentioned in there that you know such and such was before sharpies were around. Um, I've heard people say that they use the flare felt tip pens. Is that something that you, can you verify that? Uh, that was on occasion, but you, you know usually those didn't take very well on cards either. So okay. so it was just really trying to find a good ballpoint pen. You know there were a couple mm-hmm. a couple of times I. Uh, got sports illustrated covers signed with you know those big thick black it's i think it's called marks a lot markers yeah like Um, a magic marker yeah like a big magic marker so there was a couple um times i used that to get say a sports illustrated cover signed or something you know i didn't really utilize it more i mean it was it was usually too thick and big to use on a card but on a Mm -hmm. on a photo like a sports illustrated cover for example it, it worked out pretty well so I'm trying to and think. And Sharpies came onto the scene. Black Sharpies in that would have been in the late '70s. Is that correct? Um, I, I th- that's the from the research I've seen. I didn't really start using them till the early '80s. So that okay. you know, that um, pivotal day that I got the Lakers at the Camelback Sahara, th- those things are all in ballpoint pens. So I didn't have the awareness quite then. Um, okay. Uh, so sometime not long after that. Somehow I, I pieced it together. I'm not sure how I discovered Sharpies and how much better the quality of the signature is, on, especially on cards with something like that. So mm-hmm. I, I would guess sometime right around then. So let's say 82, 83 is when I, I became aware and, and started just you know exclusively using Sharpies at the time. So, And then I, I think blue came later on. I don't think they were manufacturing blue for a while. I think it just started off. I, I think I want to say there was even a purple or a brown before that, but I, I can't verify that. Right. Yeah. I, I, I know I have a couple things. Uh, so when I was living in Phoenix, I, I know I have a couple of old Suns cards in purple Sharpie because I you know, that's part of the team color. So I thought that might be kind of cool. So I remember getting a Walter Davis and I think an Alvin Adams in purple Sharpie. But yeah, focused more on the black and the blue for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, looking back, we just got, a, and that's really just the, um, the brief version because your, your history is such, um, a broad story. That's our brief version here. If you could go back though, thinking about everything you've just talked about and you had the option to do anything different in your time of collecting. And I, you know, we could say, well, you would have chosen Magic Johnson, but I, I'm talking kind of on a wider scale. Um, would you have done anything different? And if so, what would that be? Um, yeah, I, I saw your question on that. And you know what came to mind is is to really try to get everyone's signature. Now, I know not everyone's on a card, so I'm thinking more maybe on index cards, for example. And probably the more, most recent example I can think of, of that um, is uh, one of our neighbors 
ended up having a real good playing career. He played uh, at Penn and then played a little bit in the D League, uh, which is now the G League, uh, named Eric Osmondson. So when he played at Penn, I went back and saw him play at the Palestra in Philadelphia against Villanova. And Villanova had a great team. Um, uh, Randy Foy was a star, Alan Ray, Kyle Lowry, Jay Wright. But at the time, Kyle Lowry was kind of under the radar. So I remember after the game, I, you know, I got Jay Wright to sign a picture. I got Randy Foy to sign a picture and index card, Alan Ray on a, a picture and index card. And, and I know listeners will find this hard to believe now, but Kyle Lowry was kind of not a star of that team, or at least that year. And I, I had no idea, you know, that Kyle Lowry would turn into the player he was. And so I, I remember seeing him and some of the other Villanova players and just kind of let them walk by. Didn't, didn't even make an effort to get him on an index card or anything. And as Kyle Lowry's star has ascended through the years, and you know, obviously it's an all-star level NBA championship, that still eats at me. But gosh, I'd let Kyle Lowry walk right past me. I just didn't see that he would become an NBA player, much less a star. So uh, I think, that, I guess the general point is, you know, don't take anyone for granted. You just don't know what someone might develop into. I mean, obviously you have to kind of focus your effort and your time and not everyone's available, but there's been a few other situations like that, that I kind of laugh about. I, uh, you know, and a, a, a now deceased autograph collector that was one of my mentors, a guy named Dr. John Davis, who was uh, from Topeka, Kansas. He told me a story once where he was getting the Fordham football team and again, he was an elderly guy when I met him. So, you know, he, he'd gotten autographs way back in the early, early days when, you know, Babe Ruth was on a train that would pass through Topeka kind of thing, right? That that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the train stop in Topeka would be there. And and Dr. Davis, who was a kid at the time, his, his dad knew that the guy who was who ran the train station and said, hey, Babe Ruth's going to be on this train and it's going to stop, you know, in Topeka. So you might want to go down there. And so, you know. He had stories like that, but he, he told, told me the story of when he was getting the Fordham football team, and he kind of debated on if he should get their assistant coaches, and he decided he would, he would go ahead and get them. And one of those assistant coaches for Fordham football at the time, I don't even think Fordham even has football anymore, but at the time they did, was Vince Lombardi. So, oh, wow. you know, so, so who was, you know, a, a the nameless assistant coach for Fordham at the time who ended up becoming, you know, arguably the greatest football coach ever. Right. So you just don't know um, what, you know, maybe a guy is not necessarily a star player, but he's going to become a legendary coach. Right. You know, Phil Jackson's a good example of that. Right. I mean, he was a good player, but not, not great, but he became an iconic coach, you know, hall of fame level coach, which, you know, when he was playing and you were hanging around to get the Knicks autographs, you know, Phil Jackson would have been pretty low on your list of priorities, <laughs> right? When you right. when you've got all those other Hall of Fame players. So I, I guess if I would do anything different is not take for granted, you know, the other players on the team or the guys that maybe don't appear like they're uh, stars at the time. You just don't know what they're going to turn into. Now that said, do I have a shoebox, several shoeboxes of you know A to Z autographs on index cards of guys that you know were backup players for UCLA and, you know, never made the NBA or never coached or, you know, of course, but, you know, every once in a while I'll see somebody that um, 
you know, has evolved into a, a, you know, a lot of times it's a guy that was an average player that becomes a great coach. That's a good example of that. So, so I would say that's one thing I would do a little differently. Um, and then, um, gosh, I, I don't think I really have any other, other regrets. You know, I, I definitely, um, invested a lot of time, um, you know, waiting in hotel lobbies and things like that, uh, you know, hours at a time that, you know, maybe, it would be nice to have some of those hours back, <laughs> you know, and sometimes it, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't pay off. And as you know, from collecting a little bit, sometimes you'll have kind of a bad day, right? Where the guy you were hoping to get doesn't sign or you, you, you know, you wait and you wait and oh yeah, he was on the earlier bus. So he's not even here. Right. And things like that. So, you know, it kind of says, gosh, I just you know, I wish I had those two hours of my life back. Right. But, um, but there's enough times where it does pay off and the excitement of, of getting someone, you know, I, I did one of those couple hour uh, investments in Las Vegas a couple summers ago with Luka Doncic. You know, I, I kind of had a, okay. I kind of had a premonition about him. Uh, I mean, I, I follow basketball enough that I knew what a great player he was in the Euro leagues and watched whatever Euro league games I could um, that NBA TV would show. And so I just kind of had a hunch about him, uh, and, and just also kind of liked the way he played. And so he didn't play in the Mavs summer league team, but he was there. And so I kind of camped out, not knowing their schedule. They, it was an off day for them, I think, in Vegas. Um, so I just kind of hung out in the lobby of the hotel where the Mavs team was. And, and I was probably there a couple hours. But finally, at one point, here he comes. And you know, was, if you look at my Twitter, there's a picture of me with him you know, from a couple summers ago where I got a, a lady that just happened to be standing nearby. I quickly recruited her after he signed and asked if I could get a photo with him, which I, I typically don't get photos, but on occasion I do. So that that's kind of the flip side of those long hours of investing time and it not paying off or that one that was worth those couple hours to, to meet up with him. And obviously very exciting now to see how his career has taken off. I mean, I had, I didn't have a premonition that he was going to be as great as he is already, but I just, mm-hmm. I just kind of liked the way he played the game and his instincts. And um, so. Uh, so I, I know, um, well, from our conversations, I, I think I can say that you don't collect um, current cards. I mean, you're not involved in that landscape at all. Um, not really. So no. there's actually, there's actually a pretty big controversy. Um, and some people think it's just conspiracy or whatever. Um, but a lot of people think that, Luca is not signing his cards um, that Panini, which is the big card company, is sending him to sign. They think that someone else is signing for him. So uh, it might be interesting to see your autograph and see what it looks like because there have been several very different looking autographs that have emerged over time, um, which, you know, there's a number of factors that could go into that. But I'll have to uh, get a picture from you later. Maybe we can show people that. Sure. Yeah. Maybe add some fuel to the fire. Yeah, I, I have them on an index card and a couple of pictures, and um, you know, and I, as we've talked about a little bit, I always try to be very respectful and not try to load guys up on uh, uh, signing, you know, an ex- exorbitant number of things. But yeah, I'd be happy to share what I have of him. Uh, I have him on an index card and two eight by ten, so that's what I had him sign that day. And um, yeah, he was really nice about it. And I, I think it's just Luca seventy seven is what he is how he signed them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I, I'd be happy to share that or post it if uh, other people want to look at it for comparison purposes for sure. 
um, you talked about never, never uh, t- uh, taking advantage of someone or never, you know, kind of pushing someone to the side. Um, you know, it, it's funny. That's kind of how we connected is that you'll, there are people that maybe years later are trying to get autographs of obscure players that aren't worth a lot or they're trying to finish certain sets as, as I'm trying to do with the 72 set. Um, well, we've talked about it. The, the one card that I need, um, Willie Sojourner is not, he's not, um, I mean, he lived, I think he died in 2002. Um, you know, so he was around, he definitely could have signed this card, but just the logistics of it, you know, number one, there weren't a lot of people like yourself signing back, uh, that were getting cards signed in the seventies. Um, and then number two, a lot of people were just saying, well, you know, I don't really want an autograph from Willie. So that, um, caused this chase to be a little more interesting and a little more difficult than I had anticipated when I first started it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and as I've said, I'm interested in the obscure guys as much as the stars, as, as hard as that might be to believe for, for some. But, uh, I mean, obviously it's great getting the star players and, you know, someone like Luka Doncic or, or Michael Jordan or somebody that, that is really cool. And, you know, there's certain players that you encounter that just have a certain presence to them. You know, for me over the years, it's, you know, guys like Jerry West, Earl Monroe, Bernard King, John Havlicek, you know, when you're around them, you know, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it, right. They just have a certain, uh, aura to them. Right. It, and it's, it's not, and it's not forced, right. They just have it that, you know, whatever the it factor, you, know, you hear that term, right. You know, there's guys like that that are, are really cool to get. But then there's also the Willie Sojourners or, you know, I just got this guy, Stan Washington at a University of San Diego Gonzaga game. He played one game. He's kind of like a Moonlight Graham of the NBA. If, you know, the listeners know Field of Dreams and the Moonlight Graham character, right? So Stan Washington played one game, four minutes in one game for, for the Washington Bullets. But but he lives in Puerto Rico, and, and he's just kind of a little bit off the grid, right? He didn't, you know, he played so briefly and, you know, doesn't live in, in the mainland U.S. Not that that matters necessarily, but just, you know, just not easy to find or get to. And right. as fate would have it, he's the only player from the University of San Diego to ever play in an NBA game, interestingly enough, even though a lot of San Diego uh, alums are NBA coaches or executives. That's a whole other story for another day. But so... When I saw that Stan was at this game, as soon as the buzzer sounded, I, I probably knocked over a few people running down to courtside to, <laughs> to get him to sign a few index cards and a few, a few other collector friends of mine that needed him. Like uh, we have a mutual friend, Alan Siegel, for example. And so he, Alan needed him. And so for us, getting a guy like Stan Washington is like a high, the highlight of our season, right? <laughs> right. Uh, j- just because of, you know. And he was very pleasant and, and, and very happy to sign. But, you know, if he only knew right, how long I've been trying to find him, right? Yeah. Speaking of guys like that, uh, Tops did a, a set around 2005 called uh, Fan Favorites. Um, but the irony was is um, there were a lot of players in there that were not fan favorites. And, in fact, had very little playing time. Two of them that come to my mind are, are Rick Darnell and George Tinsley. And I think George, George played more than Rick, but you know, it, it wasn't a guy that you would think of that they would put in an autograph set in 2005 in a retro set. But um, that always kind of made me chuckle when I saw those guys in that set. 
Yeah, exactly. And the, I, I know who both those guys are. And I, I know of that set too. And it, I know I definitely scratched my head that, gosh, of all the guys to pick, they picked those guys. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's others like that in that set too. I think, you know. Right. Johnny Green. Yeah. It's a, it's a really obscure set. Yeah. I, I'd um, love to find out who was the, the person that selected the, the pool of players, <laughs> but that, that's a whole nother, probably another uh, research project for another podcast. Right. Um, so there are a lot of uh, novice collectors that listen to this show, and uh, I'm you know always glad to have them listening. I, I hope you know I can offer something for them that they benefit from. Many of, of my listeners don't pursue autographs on their own. A lot of us we're trying to get uh, pack pulled autographs. Mm -hmm. That's a really big thing now. Yes, uh, but there are similarities in collecting as a whole. What advice would you give these people? Well, I, th I think. As I've looked back on my collection, uh, I would suggest focus on what you like and, and what's achievable, right? So if you're, you know, only collecting, you know, the most elite NBA All Stars, you know, if you're only wanting to get Steph Curry and LeBron James and you know Russell Westbrook, and you know, you're probably now getting their, you know, obviously getting their cards and getting their autographs. There's different levels of of complexity and difficulty of that, but um, and there's nothing wrong with, with going after those guys, but I'd say focus on what you like and what's achievable, <laughs> right? So, mm -hmm. so you're getting some payback and having some success. And right. um, so that, that would be w one bit of advice. So, you know, collect what you like and not necessarily what might be valuable someday. You know, I, I've been kind of lucky that, you know, it, it's really been a passion uh, of collecting all these years and, and players that have cycled through, through the many decades um, some of it has turned out to be quite valuable, but that really wasn't ever on my mind as I was pursuing it. You know, it just has kind of worked out that way. So, uh, and I'd say the other uh, advice would be try to make it personal um, and and be creative. So if you're going to, um, uh, and this is more on the autograph angle of it, I guess you'd say. So if you're going to uh, approach someone, you know, maybe, you know, have something a little bit unique than the, you know, other than their most popular or valuable card, although that's probably what you'd ideally like to get signed. But maybe have something a little more obscure, or you know, maybe you've, if you, you know, I, I know one of my friends that is coached in the league. He's advised some of the players that he's um, he's a player development guy. That, that you know, hey, if you're running off the court after your pregame shoot around and you see someone's made a little poster, you know, they've customized something you know for about you for you. Take a, you know, take a second, you know, and, and, and sign right. and sign for them. Right. So, you know, so again, if you're a fan and you, know, you have a certain favorite player, you know, maybe something like that, or, you know, with obviously all the technology at everybody's fingertips, you can almost create your own card, right. <laughs> or, you, mm -hmm. or your own, you know, little tribute to a player to kind of catch their eye or, um, you know, or, or do a little research on their career. You know, I, I just got something back in the mail yesterday from a guy named Mike O'Corin who he played in the league, mm -hmm. played in the league for a long time and played at North Carolina. And I asked him about a player that he played against in the 1977 NCAA finals. Cause I knew they were from the same hometown. So when I wrote him, I said, Hey, how well did you know Jim Boylan? And uh, did you guys grow up together kind of thing? And so he sent me a full page letter back about how they were from the same neighborhood and grew up playing ball together. And uh, you know, that Jim never forgets. He beat me in that 77 championship game. You know, when Boylan was on Marquette and O'Corn was on North Carolina. So, you know, 
just something like that that I'm a little curious curious about on my own anyway. But then also it kind of makes it a little more personal when you're uh, when you're reaching out to these guys. So those would be a few little tips, I guess, for for younger collectors. And then I'll also, um, you know, when I was really young and collecting, there really wasn't a sense of um, you know, kind of preserving it or, you know, keeping the card, you know, in great shape and sharp. Um, not that we were, you know, folding them up or bending the corners or anything, but it, there just wasn't awareness of that. So, you know, I guess, you know, try to try to keep them uh, in, in good shape. And you know, when you get them, slip them into your, your sheets or in your binders and, uh, you know, take good care of everything. Which uh, we'll talk about this in a, a little bit, but there were a few cards that you took good care of that um, have paid off quite a bit recently. Uh, I do have I have one more question for you though before we close things up. You've had a lot of amazing experiences over the years. You've seen a lot of awesome stuff. Um, you know, you've forgotten probably more than I'll ever know. So what's left though? What keeps you collecting and pursuing some of these players? Well, uh, what's exciting now is, and what it, when it's always kind of driven me is there's new players emerging every year, right? And mm-hmm. when I first started collecting, if someone told me I'd be getting high school players to sign eight by tens, I, I would have told them they were out of their minds, right? But uh, right. but I guess since. Kevin Garnett or Tyson Chandler. I forget who the first high school players I, I got to sign were somebody back in that, in that time frame. I guess uh, that, you know, I kind of, even if I knew a guy was a legendary high school player, I just thought, well, I'll get him. I'll get his autograph sometime later when he's in college or in the NBA where now so by the time they get to college, they may, may not even be accessible. <laughs> right. They may be, uh, I mean, there's only a handful of players that really get to that uh, level every year. But um, so I think what keeps me going is just the constant churn of, uh, of, of new stars emerging into the, into the game or not even stars, but players. I, I like the way they play or I like the, the way they carry themselves or um, so, so that kind of keeps it going. And, um, and then it's fun, you know, with all the resources available now to kind of, again, track down the Bob Quicks of the world, right? So players that I, you know, missed out on for whatever reason, or maybe I have them on one card, but there's a couple other different years of their cards that I don't have that I'm, I'm trying to track down and find. So um, it, it's, you know, thankfully it's a it's a continual uh, process as, as players uh, come onto the scene. Yeah, I think it's a good lesson, too, for people that are listening today. Um, your your misses have, in a sense, helped fuel. You talked about Magic Johnson, how you know you didn't get him, and then that kind of fueled some things. And then sometimes some of this stuff you know, comes to fruition later on. So there might be some people out there, and I, I've had a recent example of this, too, where I've been chasing something 10 or 15 years, and it kind of falls into my lap. Um, but that came to be because of the connections that I've made and, and all of the things that transpired over that time. So if you're collecting and you're at a spot right now where you're frustrated, maybe you can't, uh, obtain something that you want, or you don't have access to something that you want, uh, hang in there, right. And keep making moves that will put you in a position to where someday it might happen, you know, and, and maybe it, it'll happen for reasons that are out of your control. 
but just always be receptive to that. Right. Um, Tim, it has been an incredible privilege to talk to you this weekend and then also today. I've told people that I'm into basketball history and, and I'd, I'd like to you know someday consider myself a, an amateur historian, but you've lived through so much of the sport's biggest moments and, and I have a lot that I think I can learn from you. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to offer any final remarks or plug anything you're working on or, or plug anything. I know you've had some auctions up. Um, thank you once again for your time. And, you know, I want to speak on behalf of my listeners too. Thank you. And for these next few moments, these are yours. Sure. Well, Kyle, it's been a pleasure. And I'm so glad that you found me on Twitter. And I guess that'll be the first thing I'll plug is uh, if you go to at TimGal13, so uh, at T-I-M-G-A-L-L-1-3. Um, I've been trying to post something every day, my today's treasures, as you call them. And uh, there's a, even a little story behind that. A, a few of my basketball friends in San Diego, once the um, corona hit and the season and everything got shut down, um, we were in this little text group talking about some coach or player. I don't even remember exactly. And I happened to have something in my collection that I thought they'd get a kick out of seeing. So I sent it to them. And one of them said, hey, since we have no basketball right now, can you just send us something every day like this? <laughs> and, and I got to thinking that, you know, there's probably a lot I have in my collection. And as you mentioned, Kyle, some of it's pretty obscure, but it's a unique uh, piece of uh, history, either a letter or a postmark or a, an autograph or a card or how they signed it or what they said is, is something that other fans will probably enjoy seeing. So that kind of lit the spark of me putting a daily post together. So, um, anyway, you can enjoy that. And if there are certain players or things you'd like to see, uh, I guess I take requests. You mentioned the, you know, what are your Luka Doncic autographs that you've got in person look like? So I'll, I can post something with that to, um, uh, to give you something as a, a point of comparison. Um, the other thing is, as I, uh, initially got into this, it was just for my personal interest and, uh, you know, a couple buddies and there's still a few guys that I trade and, uh, we help each other out around the country that, that kind of have similar interests. But um, uh, just over time, I, I've decided to put a few things out there for auction. And, um, you know, part of it is, you know, I've enjoyed some of this stuff for many, many decades. And, you know, and there's some players that I have multiple uh, copies of things, not necessarily doubles, but, you know, different years. And um, I'm not necessarily set on keeping every single piece in my collection. And so, uh, the time's kind of right for various reasons that I put a few things out for auction recently, and, and there's more coming up. And so I've been working with uh, the guys at SCP uh, Auctions out of Orange County. I'm in San Diego, so they're not too far away. And so uh, if you go to SCP Auctions, they've got a few of things highlighted. The past auction, they have the Tim Gallagher collection, which I'm, it's, it's kind of flattering. But, uh, um, but, you know, it's the first time that this has really come uh, come out. Uh, to the hobby, so to speak, you know, I've kind of kept, kept most of this under the radar. You know, there were two articles that the Dayton newspaper did on me once when I was in high school and then later as an adult, but I've really pretty much kept it under the radar and not really sold things. And, you know, it's just been a personal passion, but again, for a number of reasons, I decided to put a few things out there for auction and you know, I've had some success so far. And there's some more things coming up on the next auction. That's going to be, uh, in August. So you can take a look at that. And there's some, some Michael Jordan items, obviously are the ones that seem to 
uh, attract the most attention. And again, that was just kind of some lucky timing, right? So during the the eighties, when you know, you know, he certainly was on his way to the to the moon as a as a rock star. But you know, I was lucky to kind of catch him early a couple of different times in person, uh, very early through the mail. One of my childhood friends I mentioned is John Paxson, who was his teammate on the Bulls for a number of years. So I had a, a couple of fortunate timing and fortunate connections that, that helped me accumulate some pretty nice Jordan items. And a couple of those are uh, in this auction and a few were in the previous one as well. All right. So I will uh, do my best to try and link all of that stuff for people as well on my social media. So I'll put your Twitter and I'll try and grab a link to some of those auctions as well. Tim, thank you very much. And uh, I have a feeling that we're going to be talking multiple times again in the future. And I look forward to it. Uh, absolutely, Kyle. Well, it's funny. When I was uh, first discovering you through our uh, initial Twitter connection, and uh, I really like what you're doing with the, with the hobby and, and even the, the Wax Museum logo and, and kind of how you've uh, set it up, which is great. But uh your 72 tops quest to get all those signed was the one that really jumped off the page at me. So as I was listening to that podcast over the weekend, I had it on one of those portable speakers as I was doing some things around the house. And my wife said, that sounds like you. <laughs> and, and I said, I know I need to talk to this guy because I think we're, we're definitely on the same wavelength here. So uh, even though we kind of have a little different paths and, and different points in time that we, we got started, but I think we both have a, a a total appreciation for our love of the game, love of the hobby and, uh, and the different aspects of it. So it's, it's a pleasure to, to get to know you and again, look forward to more as well. All right. Thank you, Tim. All right. There you have it. Once again, a big thanks to Tim for taking the time to come on the show and talk about all of the awesome collectibles he's accumulated over the years. I'll make sure to link his social media and some of the things he's talked about. Uh, I think he also told me he'd post pictures of his Luca autographs on Friday. I know some of you are interested in seeing those. As for me, you guys can find me throughout the week on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.